Hello and welcome to the Formidable Over 40 podcast. I'm Sarah Pittendrick, a mum, award-winning entrepreneur, cancer survivor, mentor and coach. In this podcast, I'll be sharing my own story of bouncing back from rock bottom to finding my why and creating six and seven figure businesses. I'll also be chatting to some truly incredible guests who have harnessed their power and are testament to the ethos of this podcast, that you're never too old and it's never too late to achieve your goals and change your life. This episode features Elna Mills, journalist, editor and founder of Noon, a unique platform connecting brands with women in midlife. Eleanor's journey includes being editorial director of the Sunday Times, editor of the Sunday Times magazine, and chair of women in journalism. She has now founded Noon, a community which is empowering women to embrace midlife, with brands and experts sharing advice to help people make the right choices. Eleanor is passionate about changing the narrative around the latter stages of women's lives, embracing age diversity, and reframing midlife as the age of opportunity and transformation. I hope you enjoy listening. Please subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with anyone you think will enjoy it or needs it. Formidable Over 40, you're never too old and it's never too late to design a life you love. Elna, how are you? Oh, well, hello, Sarah. Really nice to see you um, and hear you on such good form. It's pretty hot down here in London. We're just at the end of the heat wave, but I'm, I'm OK. I haven't melted yet. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. What I'd love you to do is to share with us about your journey. And the first question I want to ask you is what does formidable over 40 mean to you? Well, everything that I'm doing uh, with Noon and that I've done as a campaigning, campaigning journalist is trying to change the stories that we tell about the later stages of women's lives. Um, It seems to me that the current narrative that we have um, in the wider world and the wider media is that men improve with age, like silver foxes or fine wine is kind of often how they're described. Whereas um, women are often described as being like peaches, you know, one wrinkle and they're done and they're thrown away. And for me, that has to change. Um, Everything that I'm doing with my new platform at noon And with my wider campaigning is to try and change that story. I want younger women, uh, particularly those like my daughters who are in their teens, to look forward to being 50, let alone 40, um, to as the moment where they come into their prime. I want, um, I call women in midlife queen ages. um, And I, what I see around me is so many fantastic women starting businesses, going back to retrain maybe writing a book, doing the thing that they always wanted to do as they hit midlife. And I want us to celebrate that because I think that that would benefit all women. We have to change the current matrix of the male lens, which says that women are only um, important while they're fanciable and second. That to me is completely wrong. Absolutely. And us queen ages, as you so eloquently call us which is wonderful we've got such a wealth of knowledge and so much to share haven't we oh yes we're you know I feel like I'm just getting started I had a massive career change myself um at just before 50 um and you know sort of formidable over 40 I think formidable over 40 over 50 over 60 70 I see some incredible women kind of going forward and it's such a weird thing in our society that um this is a quarter of the population of women like over 40 over 50 and yet we get written out of the script we become invisible and not anymore absolutely so if we go back and we look at 15 year old elna 
let's talk about 15-year-old Elna. What were her dreams and her hobbies? Well, it's funny you said that one doesn't really change that much. Um, what did I do when I was 15? I've always been an absolute bookworm. Um, I had read, sounds, this can sound like terrible boasting, but I'd read War and Peace twice by the time I was about 10. And I used to just like munch through classics, everything from kind of Ivanhoe to Jane Austen to Charlotte Bronte as a small child. Um, I was always a massive bookworm. So I think at 15, I was always definitely reading. I was also a bit of a wild child, Sarah. I don't know if I've told you this, but I grew up in central London. My parents lived in Soho. So um, and I was at St. Paul's Girls School when I was 15. And there was a big thing, you know, Bill Wyman was going out with the, the kind of 13, 14 year old. And we were all going clubbing and behaving pretty badly, I have to say. So I was doing a lot of going to nightclubs on my child rape photo card and staying out all night and probably telling terrible lies to my mother about where I was. But um, having a wild time. It was great fun. Creating memories, Elna. <laughs> or mayhem or, or mayhem yeah was it memories or mayhem um <laughs> noon is so exciting and you know that i'm a huge supporter of of your noon platform tell us share with the listeners about noon and what is the story behind you founding it so I am a journalist. I worked for the Sunday Times for 25 years. I was the, um, well, so I edited the magazine, as you said, but I was also the editor of the Saturday Times. Uh, I completely relaunched that newspaper. I was the uh, focus editor, so I was in charge of all the big breaking stories. Uh, so everything from American elections to things like the murder of Damalola Taylor, um, huge, you know, big British elections, huge, the biggest stories of the week. I would be in charge of all the kind of big um, stuff on that. I was the folk, the comment editor. I um, commissioned features for the News Review. So I was absolutely at the epicentre of British journalism for a quarter of a century when newspapers were still powerful. I'm afraid that their influence has waned a lot now because of the, um, because of the internet. So I was a real Sunday Times lifer. I lived, lived and breathed the brand. I'd been there for years. I joined when I was uh, 26, 27, um, and I had two kids while I was there. I was very institutionalized. And then just before the pandemic, just as I, my 49th birthday, I was told that my services were no longer required, which was a pretty major blow and pretty unexpected. I'd always thought that I was going all the way there and I was being groomed for a top job and I was editorial director. And then suddenly I was out. So. That led to a big period of soul searching, which a lot of um, listeners to this podcast will understand that there is lots of research now, which shows that there's a U curve of happiness and that actually unhappiness peaks at around 47, that we hit what I call the midlife maelstrom, where we get buffeted by all sorts of different forces. So for me, that was kind of, you know, redundancy for others. It's bereavement or divorce or emptiness if they've had kids or just whatever it is that you've been doing for that period between about, you know, your early 20s and that midlife point, you kind of hit a moment where everything unravels. And I see it with so many members of my new community. And that midlife maelstrom for me hit with the pandemic. So um, I was no longer doing the job that had given me huge identity and power for a very long time. I then got COVID really badly and I was ill for about a month and I felt absolutely dreadful. I had to completely prune back my life, reinvent myself, work out what it was that I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I think what's strange is when you've been in a job for a very long time, 
you f- you actually kind of lose sight of actually what your real skills are. You know, you become so institutionalized. You're so part of that world. Like I felt like somebody in Game of Thrones wearing a kind of huge kind of, you know, black cloak with lots of kind of fur and gold kind of amulets and suddenly having that taken off. So the cloak gives you this huge power and status. You take off the cloak and then it's a bit like being Darth Vader under the cloak or like, you know, it's like, well, who are you underneath this kind of thing that you've worn for so long? And actually, I found that process, although initially very horrible, scary, sad, um, as all kind of losses or bereavements are, and it did feel like that. Actually, I really think it's been the making of me. Um, I've lost about three stone. I'm way happier. <laughs> I feel like I've found my own voice and can really campaign on the things that I care about. Um, and what I've also really learned that actually having your own voice, being able to say what you think, not being part of a huge institution, is actually now the most valuable thing for me. And I, when I came out of the Sunday Times, I realized that there were so many of my friends around me were also going through this transition and that there was absolutely nothing out there to help them with that midlife maelstrom or something which pointed the way to what the future might look like. So I, so I set up this new company called noon.org.uk, which is all about helping women find their next chapter in midlife and is a bit like me, relentlessly optimistic about the possibilities that there are, how we can move from one thing into another and telling inspirational stories about incredible women, formidable over 40, like yourself, dear Sarah, um, and others who are doing incredible things in midlife. Because I think unless we, I'm a, you know, I'm a journalist, so I really believe in the power of storytelling. And I think unless we change the kinds of stories that we tell about women at this point, we won't change the way that society thinks about us. And what I found is that optimistic message to women saying, you know, we're not done, you're not invisible, just because, you know, you're not 25 doesn't mean to say that you don't have value or things to contribute, um, is actually really being lapped up by my queen ages, that they're absolutely um, so longing for a more optimistic script in our society. And that's really what I've been offering. So I've been doing that for the last two years, and I absolutely love it. Um, I kind of feel like I really am my brand, that I've lived that journey myself and the women love it. So if you haven't found us on Noon yet, do come and have a look. And it's, it is interesting and in, in what you say, and in, in it's about building this, this community, because I often think that, especially speaking to the many women I do in midlife too, there's this element of loneliness, isn't it? And having this space to come to and it's a me too isn't it that me too comfort blanket of thinking you're not alone so um it's all about empowering women you've touched on it um on and there why is it so important to you well i think what you're saying about loneliness is really true i think that's a really core um uh problem for a lot of the women but also i think that the point about change is you can't change by doing the same things with the same people And if you're going to move into a new era yourself and a next chapter, then you need some new people to do that with. You need a new tribe. And really what I'm trying to do at noon is create a new tribe for women at this point. I mean, for many of us, if we've been in work, I mean, one of the things I really felt sad about when I left the Sunday Times was it felt like such a kind of outcasting from tribe, you know, that had been my tribe for so long. And I see many other women, maybe if they've stayed at home with their kids, then 
when the kids go off to university, then that whole kind of school gate scene, that whole tribe which has been around your children doesn't exist anymore. Um, or a lot of women get divorced at this point or their partners die or they move house or something like that, which again means that you become, become very dislocated from the people who you know, have been your friends. And also, if we think about friendship, you know, it's that old phrase, for, you know, friends for life, for a reason, for a season. And often as our, as our season shifts or we move or whatever, those friends kind of some, some of them fall by the wayside. And I actually think that one of the really important things about finding a next chapter is finding a new tribe who will help you embrace that. Because often our <laughs> existing friends or even our partners are quite invested in seeing us the way that we are. And therefore, to move into a new version of ourselves, we need some other people who were also on that journey or who are um, capable of seeing what we might become, a new version of ourselves. So for me, something I went on a retreat quite early on my um, journey out the Sunday Times, and I met a whole group of people who um, I do a meditation circle with every week. And they were not people that I knew before. And they're not really people I would probably have come across in my old kind of life, but they've been massively important and supportive in my new journey and allowing me to explore bits of myself that I didn't know were there. And so I think that that sense of giving yourself kind of the space and the kind of flexibility of a new load of people who don't know you in your own incarnation can allow you to be something new yourself. I mean, I was surrounded by such a load of cynical old hacks. There's no way I could have moved into say the kind of meditation and a lot of the slightly more spiritual practices which have brought me huge strength during this this time of transition and for me really leaning into the uncertainty has been a massive thing and also learning to be still and to really look after myself I swim every day and I um I, I do pilates twice a week and I meditate every day and all of those things have been incredibly important in my own transition and transformation into a new chapter. So I think that we also have to really kind of work on ourselves and as we get older, replenish ourselves if we're going to kind of have the energy and the drive to do the creativity and the and the kind of, you know, you know what it's like kind of building a new business, the kind of drive that once that is required. Yeah, it's it's very important, isn't it? And you've got to you've got to invest in yourself. You know, and, and so many of us in midlife, we have invested in everybody and everything but ourselves. And um, and I think what you're saying is about yeah, there how you've taken self-care into your, you know, into yeah, every day. How many people? You know, I, I speak to many of my, my, my clients and I, and I say to them, how much time do you spend on yourself? They don't. They, they've, they've forgotten. They're, yeah, they're lost. You- you can't do that, though. I mean, I remember I, when I was at Oxford, when I was at university, I got um, I got quite ill. They thought I had glandular fever. And I went to see a really top doctor in London. And she said, Eleanor, if you're going to perform like a Ferrari, you've got to eat like a Ferrari. And she said, you know, just eating baked potatoes and baked beans from the kebab van at three in the morning after I'd been clubbing was not enough to sustain <laughs> brain and body. And I think I think that there's something in that at this point that... Um, I had spent 25 years running around like a lunatic, um, incredibly busy from the moment I woke up to the moment that I went to sleep on things, Sunday times, kind of. I, I was talking to a friend yesterday who's just left one of those jobs, and I said it was a bit like being one of those Indian statues which have, um, you know, those goddesses who have like 16 arms. Um, and I felt like I, when I left the Sunday times, I felt like I had 16 arms and like nothing to do. It was really weird. So I had to kind of, 
train myself <coughs> to just, I don't know, to just to run at a more normal pace. I mean, you can see I'm still not, I'm, I'm still not someone who sits around on my, you know. I don't think you're going to be, are you? Like, I don't think you're going to no, be. Never gonna you're be. never going to be. <laughs> but I'm much more centred and calm now. And I also just feel much better in myself. And I think that there's something around this midlife maelstrom where it's, I think about it like a pruning back. So you go, when you go through all these changes at this point, whatever form it, it takes for you, um, it's, a, it's a kind of, it's a bit like a big rose bush, which has got really out of control. And really what's happening is you're taking the shears to your life and chopping off all the bits which are a bit dead or that have got a bit trailed out and you don't need anymore and taking yourself back to this very kind of um, springy kind of green essence, that kind of, you know, vibrant green shoot that just kind of goes, ring, you know, that's what you need. You need to get rid of all the extraneous stuff, get back to that really vibrant shoot, which is your purpose, your kind of core animating um, essence, the stuff that really makes you happy, that really gets you going. And that's a really painful process. I think change is difficult, really difficult. And we don't, as a culture, we don't think about that enough. Um, I didn't know that. I felt really, I felt awful about the fact that I was finding it so hard. You know, I'd always been such a positive person. I felt really tearful a lot of the time. And sharing that kind of vulnerability, my um, daughters were amazing. Even my teenage, I was so, in such a bad way, even my teenagers were sympathetic. They'd kind of come down and go, you know, I'm crying this morning. I'm afraid to. Um, and but I but I got better, and I think it was really important to be able to really express that sorrow and the anxiety around that change. And I had a lot of lovely friends who really gathered round. And it's like you go going down to the bottom of a swimming pool. You kind of hit the you hit the bottom, and you push yourself back up again. And you will hit the you know. And if you're if you're you know lucky, and you're you have a kind of sense of solidity in yourself and a sense of purpose, and you have lovely people around you. And, you know, you will find and you look after yourself and you do the self-care and you take some exercise and you look after yourself and you just calm down. You will bounce back up again. Your analogy about pruning, because in this society, when we when we read so much on social media, people are pushing and pushing and pushing. But actually, sometimes what you need to do is actually take that step right back, don't you? And, and take it back sometimes. And then, as you quite rightly say, leave the space for new growth, which can be daunting. Yeah, well... Well, all change is a kind of, you know, if you think about the cycle of life, um, every death is also a rebirth. If we look at all the stories kind of going back, I'm sorry, I'm obsessed by stories, always have been. But if you look at all the stories kind of going back into the most ancient history, the, there's always, and it's a, particularly, it's a particularly female quality, actually, that life and death are interlinked. They are the flip side of the same coin. Anyone who's given birth knows that you kind of sit on, what I call the astral portal. It's where, it, you know, things are thin, where life comes in and life goes out. And those things are very joined. So when you have a kind of death in your life, there's also a space, a space is cleared, like a kind of a tree being chopped down in a clearing. And the space is, is cleared for something new. And that process of bereavement, bereavement and then rotting away and rebirth and regrowth and is really, is really important. And it's not... When you get plunged into it, it's a, you find yourself in a very uncertain way at place because we don't really talk about it as a society. But it is completely there. You know, in all endings, there is a new beginning. You know, the old cliches, when one door opens, one door shuts, another a window opens somewhere. And that is really true. You just need to find where that window is opening for you. 
And I think that if, if as a society we talked more about how things come to a close, how you mourn them, how you kind of go down into that kind of period, if you think about winter where everything is regenerating, it's a wonderful um, picture by um, a German romantic painter, which when you look at it, looks black. Everything, all the branches are black, the sky is black. Everything looks like it's at the end of life. And actually, when you look closer, you see that on those black branches, there are buds which are just about to come out. Yeah, so that, you know, the darkest hour is always just before dawn. And I think it's very important to remember that. Absolutely. Now, going back then, and we'll if we could chat a little bit about your time at the Sunday Times. What did you learn from your experiences at the Sunday Times that you've carried through into your current business? I had a fantastic time at the Sunday Times. I mean, for 25 years, I was right at the centre of the culture. I was creating the stories that everybody out there talked about. Um, after 9-11, I was the editor of the News Review. We were, you know, what was going to be the big story that weekend? I commissioned Andrew Sullivan to write an enormous piece, about 3,000 words, called Why Do They Hate America? You know, you were setting the context for the debate that everybody else would then have. So it was an amazingly privileged position to be in. And also pre-internet newspapers were the gatekeepers for all news. All So all politicians had to talk to newspapers, all celebrities had to talk to newspapers if they wanted to get their story out there. So it was an amazing place. You were, you were like, you were at the node. You were the, you know, you were the, the way that the world communicated. So that was amazingly heady and fun. And I started doing that when I was 26. I was really young. I was usually the only woman in the room. It was, it was incredibly exciting just to be allowed to be there to pull those levers. And I learned to speak truth to power. Um, I would have to several times a week uh, pr present a list, probably like 15 ideas uh, with the writers who would be writing them to a panel of, you know, a big kind of conference, it was called, which would have the editor and like 20 of the other most senior people on the newspaper, the economics editor, the political editor, the editors of all the different sections. And I was the news review section, so that was kind of features and comments. So that's kind of everything. And so you could be shot down by anyone around the table. Most of them were men. Um, and I think that that was the most incredibly rigorous training. I mean, nothing I do now, live TV, podcasts, writing, nothing is nearly as scary as having to present that list three times a week to all those men when I was really young. And I think that that was such a great training in doing something terrifying, you know, a lot. And it teaches you that you can really be on your brief, that you can argue your corner, that sometimes you can lose and you can bounce back, it teaches incredible resilience. Um, and it was a huge training in like all the world's big issues. And on top of that, I've interviewed some of the world's biggest statesmen from Mikhail Gorbachev to the Dalai Lama, to David Cameron, to Theresa May in her leather trousers, to Sheryl Sandberg several times. I've been out to Facebook in Palo Alto. I've been in and out of Downing Street, you know, a lot. I mean, I've sat in Rupert Murdoch's um, penthouse in New York. I mean, I had an incredible, I had an incredible run. Um, I always used to feel like, used to describe it as like a surfer being on a wave. I caught a wave when I was like 26. And that wave carried me actually till I was nearly 50. So I had an amazing innings and I learned a huge amount. And I had a great time. I worked with some incredible people. So, you know, I'll never, never regret any of that. But I also um, am now delighted that I can use that storytelling power, the convening power, the power of that network that I created 
as such a high-powered editor for so long now to drive the campaign that I really care about. And then alongside everything I was doing at the Sunday Times, I was also the chair of women in journalism. And we ran some really um, groundbreaking studies on what I call the male lens, which is, if you think about it, most newspapers are edited by old men, um, posh old men. That means that all the news that you usually read is filtered through the way that those old men see it. So if you're a young woman and you want to get a kind of different kind of story into the newspaper, that's quite difficult. So an example would be, so I remember um, having some photographs taken of a very famous, beautiful, older actress for the cover of the Sunday Times magazine. And she was in her 70s. She'd been very, very beautiful when she was younger. And I took the editor the pictures of her, you know, as beautiful black and white pictures of her as an older woman. And he didn't want to run them. He wanted to see a picture of her when she was young. Um, and that is a completely classic example of the male lens. Um, and, and that you see on everything. So when Nicola Sturgeon went to uh, meet Theresa May to discuss Brexit, the front page of the Daily Mail the next day was, forget about Brexit, it's all about Lexit. And it had pictures of Nicola Sturgeon's legs and Theresa May's legs and who looked the sexiest. And that was kind of saying, doesn't matter how powerful you are or what you're discussing, if you're a woman, you're always going to be judged on your looks, not on the content of your character or your policy, even if you're the leader of the country. And so I've campaigned passionately around that male lens and what it meant for women in the public eye to always be seen from that male point of view. And everything I'm doing at noon is a continuation of that because it's about challenging that male lens and saying, actually, women, you know, in their 50s may not you know, be delectable to the male lens anymore, but we still have a value. We have money to spend. We have things to offer. We have huge wisdom. We have glue that holds society together. And we're not going to be defined by the way a whole load of old chaps see us anymore. And I feel passionately about that now. And that's something that I could never have expressed as a very, you know, high-powered executive on the Sunday Times because I was part of an institution which had a male lens. And I think what's also interesting is it doesn't have to have a man at the top to have that lens. Often the kinds of women who get into those positions of power are basically blokes in dresses or they wouldn't have got those jobs and they have to be sustaining the status quo. And if you truly come in with a diverse point of view, that's not really welcome, even if they say that it is. That's what I've learned. Mm. And I think it's a, a very interesting point that you made is about the, uh, the wealth of the, the midlife woman, the, the, the disposable income that she has, you know, um, very much yeah. overlooked. Which, as you know, from your work with all these um, uh, midlife entrepreneurs, you know, they're con we're controlling a lot of money. We just did a big piece of research at noon with the uh, management consultants um, Accenture. And we've done the biggest study into women in midlife. And that shows that... Um, Queen ages, as I call them, are behind 90% of all household spending decisions. Um, we spend 250% more than millennials. Um, I mean, I know it. My, my girls might spend 20 quid on a pair of jeans. I'll spend 200 quid on a pair of jeans if they're going to make my ass look good. You know what I mean? So we, we've got the cash. We've got the cash to, to kind of spend if we want to. And we do. And what our, um, what our research shows is that, that women at this point, even very successful professional ones, feel very invisible within our society. We interviewed a woman who's the partner in a law firm in London who's 50 and single, doesn't have kids. And she said to me, I just feel like I'm invisible. I feel like, you know, nobody wants to talk to me, which is crazy because her phrase was, I am disposable income-arama. 
um, and yet brands don't want to talk to her. So it's not just about brands, but it's it's really important, I think, that there's this kind of missing piece of the jigsaw, which is the wisdom and the value of older women in our culture. And until we fix that, our daughters are going to grow up in a world where they think that women are only valued for being fecund and fanciable. And I think that is completely wrong. And that is the male lens in action. And that's what everything at noon uh, that I'm doing is about, is about changing that and really releasing into the world that value of the female elder and celebrating it and showing what that can look like. Here, here. Absolutely. And on that note, so life now is very different to corporate life. So share with us, what is a typical day like now in Eleanor Mills's life? Well, today I'm having a lovely day because I've got one of my daughter's friends, um, Leia, with me on uh, work experience. <laughs> She's sitting listening to this. Um, and I am up in the kind of penthouse bit of my house in London. She's got an amazing view across the Hampstead Heath, which is where I work a lot. I, stand, I have a kind of stand-up desk. And um, what do I do? I answer emails. I do quite a lot of podcasts. I do some TV. And what I love is that every day is really different. But the things which anchor it are every morning I wake up and I meditate for half an hour before I have breakfast. My husband brings me a really amazing coffee in bed after I finish meditating. And this morning he'd gone out and bought us cinnamon buns from the amazing bakery up the road. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I have quite a nice life, I have to say. And then um, at noon every day I go and swim on Hampstead Heath in the ponds. So those are my kind of two fixed points. And then I'll have often have dinner with my daughters and my husband I've got two daughters one's just um at university and the other one's doing her A-level studying politics um and so we have a very and my husband works from home too so we're very what's lovely for me is having spent so many years running into the office or running around the world and being very frenetic I now really feel very um entrenched in home um and the kind of domesticness and then I do a lot of talking to my noon community so I write a newsletter every week which is my um my kind of thoughts some of the things that I've been talking about today and I'm just about to do a book actually all about Queen Ages for a big publisher and um I'm I'm also going to do a podcast I talk to a lot of brands I go um I sometimes work down in Soho I, I go to the Groucho Club and do my meetings from there but what I love about my life is that it's always it's always different and I'm getting asked to do fantastic things all the time. And then I still do quite a lot of work for the newspapers. So um, every week I'll have a couple of articles, you know, in the Telegraph or Guardian or something like that, um, which really helps to drum up support for my campaign and for what I'm doing at noon. Mm, you, you're very passionate and, and, it, and your energy is infectious. Um, tell me, what is your why? What is it that drives you? I just passionately believe that women are dealt a really bad hand in life often. You know, I think that a lot of the stories that we're told about women are absolute rubbish. And having been right in the kind of fulcrum in the eye of the storm of the places that create these narratives, I really understand that they can be challenged. And what I've seen in my own life, I mean, I went to, um, I, I went to a kind of boys public school to do my um, A-levels, which was incredibly homophobic. Um, and yet those kind of attitudes are not, would not be acceptable now. Same on race. I mean, I was part of a really um, a kind of pioneering generation. I had lots of you know, black friends and black boyfriends and things when I was growing up and was in a very kind of multiracial 
still am very kind of multiracial kind of London scene. So I think that my generation, Gen, Gen X, kind of erased that kind of homophobia and racism and things that people used to say when I was growing up in the 70s. They cannot say now, thank God. And so I want to see the same fundamental shift and change happen in respect of gendered ageism as we've seen happen around things like homophobia and around race. And I think it's really possible to change this story about what older women are for and their value. And if I can do that, and that, and, and it's already beginning to work. I mean, I've seen the effects already in the culture. I've been doing mean for kind of um, for two years. So what I'm really trying to do is to use everything that I've learned, all the context that I have, all the kind of network, all the amazingly powerful people that I know in the world because of the job that I did before, to harness that power to change this narrative around older women, for brands, for the women themselves. And what I really love is this community that I've created at Noon, where um, the women feel so much better about themselves and so excited and optimistic about what the rest of the rest of their lives can bring as a result of, I think, me being brave and raising my voice and saying, this is ridiculous, we don't need to put up with it. And that's the way that change happens. Um, I'm, one of the other things I'm doing at the moment is I'm working with something called the 30% Club, which was founded by Helena Morrissey, which campaigned to increase the number of women on boards and the number of diverse folks in the leadership of the biggest businesses in the world. And I knew Helena when she first started that campaign. Um, I interviewed her about it then. I used to write about it in my column in the Sunday Times. And now, 12 years on, last week I hosted a big event at the London Stock Exchange. Um, and when we first started campaigning around this, there were 12% of board seats were taken by women. Now that's 40% and heading towards parity. So we're not there yet, but it just shows, you know, Helena began with an idea she, to hassle the chairman to put more women on their boards, to make a fuss about it in the media, to start talking about the inequity of the fact that women are 52% of the population and made up 10% of the leaders. So I think we can do the same thing with this conversation around older women. We are a pioneering generation of women in midlife, us queenagers. There have never been women like us before. And we can see that in the census. In 2019, women over 40 started earning more money than women under 40 for the first time ever. And that's because women like you and me, Sarah, have, have continued working while raising our children and into our midlife. And we now command considerable amounts of wealth. And we're not used to being ignored and told to shut up and go away. We're not going to have our mother's midlife. That's what all this conversation around menopause, I think, is reflecting as well, that we're getting here and going, wow, there's been a conspiracy of silence around this. Where, where's the doctors with the information? Where's the treatment? Where's my HRT, if that's what works for you? And this, that menopause is the beginning of a much bigger Queen Ager conversation, which is about putting us um, front and centre of the culture. And you're beginning to see that in the shift in the kinds of programming coming out of Hollywood, things like Big Little Lies from Reese Witherspoon or Mayor of Eastwick or the reboot of Sex in the City with the women in their 50s. We're beginning to actually see some amazing midlife queenager role models. And I like to think that I'm absolutely part of driving that revolution. That's my purpose. That's my why now. Yeah. You're there championing everybody, all of us wonderful queenagers. Who is championing you? So we all know as founders in business, business can be tricky and we can face challenges and it can be tough. It's not all plain sailing, is it? So 
what is it that you do or um, what motivates you when you're questioning your why? I don't question my why. I sometimes question the how, as you know. Um, and I think that what you need is some really, um, it's people that you trust who you can kind of go and bounce things off. So you, know, you and I have had some really good, robust conversations. Um, I love I love um, Sarah. She doesn't call her, she, do, she doesn't mince her words. I came up, we're doing a book together. I'm helping Sarah write her um, memoir. And um, she's writing most of it herself. I'm just giving her a bit of a kind of skeleton and a structure. And we got to know each other kind of through LinkedIn and Sarah got in touch with me and then we spent two very intense days together up in um, Northumberland with me interviewing Sarah about her, her, her book, as she calls it, which I loved. And um, <laughs> we started, I think poor Sarah had started weeping within about, what was it, literally we were within about five minutes, Sarah was in floods of tears. So we, we, um, we kind of met each other in a very kind of um, intense crucible and we got to know each other very well. And then Sarah was asking me about my business model and uh, you know, definitely saying as, as a former entrepreneur of the year that I, it needs some work, that I'm good at campaigning, that, you know, my business women's skills are, definitely need some honing. So, so, you, so that's, you know, that's how it works. It works. You, take, you take inspiration um, and advice from people that you trust around you. And I think it's really important as part of your new, your tribe to have people that you can go to and also not to be afraid to ask for help. I ask for help a lot. Absolutely. And in, it's, it's interesting about you, you talk about the tribe and the connections and the collaborations and, and the support. Um, on your journey, what support networks have helped you along the way? My husband's been amazing. I've been with the same, um, I've been with Derek for 25 years, which is, we've just about to celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. So. He's been very, very important. My kids, um, of course. Um, a, women in journalism power has been is what you have if you would walk if you walked out of your job, um, you know, today. So your your real kind of power, the real your real assets, are all the things that you have if you weren't doing your job. And I actually discovered that those things were, you know, they're my my kind of capacity to write stuff. The people that I know. And all the things that I did kind of um, really pro bono or out of passion while I was at the Sunday Times. So I ran women and journalism for seven years and I turned it from quite a kind of, you know, kind of small organization into something which is, was really big and campaigning. We set up a big mentoring scheme and it's become a real old girls network within journalism, which I'm really proud of. And the power of that network and how the women support each other is really, um, really incredible and really works. So I think that often the kind of often we kind of create our social capital or our real power kind of along the way through the things that we do out of passion. Um, and I've always really cared about hearing the voices of people who don't usually get heard. And I've always tried to use my position at the Sunday Times to speak up for people who didn't usually get a look in there. It was kind of how I justified being there to myself. So I did a big campaign for Britain's poorest children. We raised two million pounds for Britain's poorest children um, through a whole load of stuff I wrote. I did on the Sunday Times magazine, um, and I became really interested in a really awful story about children who dread the holidays because they were living on this estate in North London called the Broadwater Farm Estate, where the housing was so bad and the gangs um, which are on the estate are so scary that the kids couldn't play outside, so they were being cooped up in horrible flats for the whole of the holidays um, in the I mean I was thinking about them yesterday in this terrible heat 
and just thinking, you know, we are so lucky to have lives where we have choice and possibilities and we can walk around the supermarket maybe and not worry about how much things cost. And I'm always very um, mindful of the fact that I was born into great privilege and I went to amazing schools and I had a fantastic education and I knew lots of people and I was very much in the centre of kind of penguin huddle, if you like that analogy. And I've everything I've tried to do in my career is to widen that that huddle to bring other kinds of people in. And I think that that's really important. And that's also kind of what I'm trying to do now. I think if you have been you know, lucky enough to have had a great education and to, you know, know a lot of people and to be kind of quite powerful in this world, then you need to use that agency to help other people have chances. And I feel really fortunate about that. And I've done that through my, you know, work campaigning around um, representation of women and the male lens and lots of stuff around social mobility. And, you know, I really, I really care about trying to leave the world a better place than I, I came into it from I come from a family of you know politicians and campaigners and lawyers and that kind of thing so I think that that's very much been maybe it's a bit champagne socialist but it's definitely what we were bred with that's been in our DNA. And you mentioned there and I mean you are doing it and that's very clearly giving women a voice yeah you're giving women a voice and you touched on it earlier that you've been working with me to write my book which has been a cathartic emotional roller coaster. I don't know how else to describe it I can't I don't think I can say it's been fun. Um, We've had fun. We've had fun. But I'm not sure how much fun it's been so far, but it is improving. Um, we're at chapter six, and I think we're, we're starting to uh, get a little bit lighter, aren't we, in, in, in the, in the storyline? Um, yeah, but it's always, the, it's always the grit in the story. It's the grit and the oyster that makes the pearl. So as I said to you when we first began, we had to really dig, dig into the depths in order to get the good stuff. Yes, yes, certainly great. That's one thing we we could describe it as. Um, So I had to open up about my journey. And obviously, I've shared about how that journey has taken me to my purpose, which is like you. I'm very, very passionate about championing the midlife woman, midlife, just midlife. I'm very champion, very passionate about championing midlife for whomever. Um, I, I, I don't ever believe that you should dismiss your passion or your purpose for age, yeah? So um, my book, as I say, is explaining how, you know, I found my purpose. How do you find the process of working with other women to share their stories? What, what is this, what is that process like, Elna? Oh, I love, I mean, I love it. I mean, as a journalist, I've been, I'm like a magpie for people's stories, um, as you know. Um, and everywhere I go, it's like, it, or it's like being a magpie or like a kind of sniffer dog, like a bloodhound. It's like, you know. Bloodhound I would use. Oh. I think in my experience of knowing you, Elna, I would say bloodhound. <laughs> bloodhound. So I'm kind of, I have quite a good instinct for what will make a good story, I think. I mean, that was what kept me at the Sunday Times for so many years and, and still really drives noon. So I was out with someone, oh, I was just having coffee with a friend of mine who's an amazing woman, actually, who set up the first impact investing firm in Mexico. She was over from Mexico because she's going off to the Tour de France to, um, th- there isn't a women's tour, which I think is a real, was a real travesty, but she is cycling the route. Um, and so she's going up all those kind of vertical slams. So I was going, Annie, you're an absolute nutter. Why are you doing that? And then we were talking over breakfast about how, there are similarities to what she's tried to do. And she's raised 10 million quid for this um, 
fund which invests in female entrepreneurs in Mexico, which is such a macho society. So it's really amazing what she's doing. And she was saying, well, actually, there are real parallels between why I love climbing mountains on my bike on my bicycle um, and how I've set up this fund. And I and I was suddenly like, that's great piece. So I was like, she's going, I'm flying to Chamonix today. And I was like, yeah, you're going to write me this article on the plane. And she has. It will be up on Moon next week. So I just think it's it's just being aware everywhere that there are fantastic stories and kind of sniffing them out and then getting people to to write them for you I mean that's just what I do so but um I love a story I think a story is the most powerful thing in the world and that if you can get people to kind of really engage with the story and understand that things can be different we can tell stories which do change the world and that's what I you know I've seen all the way through my journalistic career and that I know can happen I mean just on the cycling thing I was at the Sunday Times well um, when we uncovered Lance Armstrong, you know, and that whole, all the lies he was telling about kind of doping and drug taking or, you know, the kind of cash for question stuff. I mean, I really believe that if you tell different kinds of stories, you can really change things. All the stories that we told about um, these poor kids in the Broadwater Farm or in Blackpool did actually change their lives because we managed to raise a whole load of money so that the kids who lived in those flats now have a fund, which means every summer they can go out of London and go and spend some time in tents and understand the, natu- the natural world. So I just think you have to believe that you can change the play- the world for, for the better and then harness the skills you have. Absolutely. And to do that, we talk about confidence and self-limiting beliefs. And I need to ask you, have you ever suffered from self-limiting beliefs or do you ever have a shake of confidence? And if you do, how did you, or if you had, how have you overcome them or how do you deal with them? I think everybody has self-limiting beliefs. Um, my stepmother was Tessa Jowell, who is an a MP and a politician, and she used to say it's really important to do something terrifying every day. Um, and my co-founder um, on Noon um, sent me a card when we first kicked off which said, do something that scares you every day, and she'd written inside, only one. <laughs> you know? So I think that it's really important to understand that even people who appear confident and lots of people say to me, oh, my God, you've been so brave and setting up noon and doing what you've done. But it, I, I haven't been able to do that because I'm not scared. I am scared and I often feel quite nervous about how things are going to land. Or I've also feel, felt really kind of exposed or kind of quite vulnerable. But I also know that sharing a bit of that vulnerability or sharing that truth connects Um one of the things, I mean, maybe one of the things that I learned as a columnist on the Sunday Times for many years is that if you really believe something and you write it from the heart, that will always connect with an audience. So there are, if, 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 if it really matters that much to you, there will be other people that it connects with too. So I think I have a confidence that if I care about something or I think something's a good story, other people will, because that's how I earned my living for 20 years. Um, but I think we all have self-limiting beliefs. I mean, you have, you really helped me with one of them because I was worried about how I'd start to monetize the community that I built. Um, and having spent 25 years as the, at the Sunday Times as an executive, we were one of the first newspapers to bring in a paywall and try and make people pay for the content, which was difficult because all the other news sites at that point were free. Um, and it was really hard. And therefore, I had a real sense that it was going to be very hard to get women to pay for what I was doing at noon and you said to me this is ridiculous of course they'll pay um and actually about a week after I came down from seeing you in Northumberland I I I did I put on a paywall on my um Substack newsletter and I've now and since then it was only about you know a couple of months ago 
I've made over $10,000 in annualized revenue from people paying for the content, which I just didn't think they would do. So I think even people who look quite confident and look like they know what they're doing can have self-limiting beliefs that they don't necessarily see. Um, and so that's where we all need a team, a tribe, a coach, um, a friend to go, no, you know, you've got this, you can do this. And, and it's why Noon is a community which is created to support so we can, women can support each other on this journey. And we run retreats and we run masterclasses and we run a noon circle and a book club and all those kind of things. We do walks so that the women can get together, meet each other, support each other. And I see myself as the kind of, you know, maybe Queen Asia cheerleader kind of you know, standing at the front going, you know, roll up, roll up. We can do this. This is, you know, these are the arguments. And then when you put it to people, they go, yeah, it's really shit that society makes us feel bad about ourselves. This is ridiculous. I mean, but it's just a construct in the same way that now it's not all right to be racist or to be homophobic. I want to make it not all right to be um, to be kind of sexist about kind of ageism or to judge women on their looks as they get older. And it's not just external judgment as well. It's how we most importantly, how we feel about ourselves and what I call internalized misogyny um, and the way that we can we can sometimes be our own harshest critics with that male lens judgment that we've all imbibed. And women can be really bad at that. I mean, think about how many women read the Daily Mail and ingest all that stuff and take it to heart about, I don't know, chubby ankles, cankles, or kind of, you know, bingo wings or whatever. I mean, you know, rubbish. We don't need to believe all of that. We, we, can, we can free ourselves from that lens and that kind of thinking if we choose to and if we tell different kinds of stories. And there'll be many listeners, I, I would imagine, who will be sitting there thinking that sounds easier said than done how do you how would you suggest to them that if they're sat there feeling you know lacking in confidence and they've got self-limiting beliefs but there's something that they really want to do you know they're passionate about it but fear is stopping them pushing it over the line what advice would you give to them Elna? Well, you know, get some help. Start talking to your friends about it. Come and join the noon circle. You know, look at what we're doing, read some other people's stories. You know, most importantly, you know, nail your courage to the sticking post and you won't you won't fail. Fortune favours the brave. You've got to get on with it. We only have one life. No point in like sitting there wishing that you'd done things when you're dead, you know. Don't 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 let fear stop you. In fact, I remember when someone um asked said to me when I left the Sunday Times, what would you do if you weren't afraid? It's a great question. And just think about what you'd do if you weren't afraid and then think, well, sod the fear and just get on with it. Start making a plan. Who wants to lie on the deathbed saying, I wished I had? We want to be saying, I'm glad I did. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, and also sometimes you try things and they don't work out, but you always learn something from trying it. And also I think that people respect you for making an effort. And, you know, and what is failure anyway? You either win or you learn. We always learn. And, you know, sometimes you, sometimes, and, you know, sometimes you win or sometimes, sometimes the win is not what you thought it was going to be. I mean, I thought when I left the Sunday Times that that was a terrible failure. I now think actually it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I've never been happier or more excited or more full of hope. It's become your win. It's become a win. Yeah, exactly. But it was, it felt like a failure. So in the same way that we were talking about, you know, in death, there is resurrection and life. In failure, there is the seeds of success. Was it? It's, you get it in um, chitty chitty bang bang out of the ashes, you know, come the roses of success. 
from the ashes of disaster come the roses of success. There you are. You made me sing. We've got to be near. We've got to be near the end there. <laughs> so, in talking about priorities, because you've you, you know you've had a busy career. You're a wife. You're a mum. How have your priorities changed over the course of your life? I don't. I, I tell you what. I tell you what. I think. I think. I think. When you're younger, you prioritise maybe external status. Um, but now, <clears throat> I was offered a job recently to go back into newspapers, kind of where I was before, and I didn't even pursue the process because I just don't want to do that. And what I've learned is that my having control over my own voice, my own message not having to run any of my ideas by some older man and feed it through the male lens is actually the sweetest thing for me. And that it doesn't matter how much money someone's going to pay me or I'm not, I'm just not prepared to give that up. And that is now absolutely at the top of my value tree. And that can never be taken away from me again. And that's what really matters. So I think that that's also what this kind of crucible of the midlife maelstrom does is it really makes you batten down what your priorities are and we saw that in our queen age of research that we talk about the women being forged in fire um over 50 percent have been through five massive life events um but the ones who've been through the most are the happiest um it's actually that kind of soldering process that going through the fire that gives you the confidence and the wisdom to pursue your own path absolutely and who do you take inspiration from elna who inspires you or what inspires you? Um, other great writers, books, um, people that I meet, um, my my kids and their amazing friends. I feel such a sense of kind of hope in the Gen Z generation. I think they're amazing, really care about things. They're so much more kind and considerate of each other. I think their attitudes to relationships are kind of much more honest. They really care about the planet. I just have... I see so many of them who are so clever and lovely and passionate. I really hope that they'll save us all. And I feel really guilty that our generation have been so useless on the big challenges. Well, on that note, it has been an absolute pleasure, as always, chatting to you. But I'd like to ask you one more question. Paying it forward. So it's time to pay forward. What is the biggest piece of advice? that you would give to other people embarking on a journey of reinvention or finding a new direction? What would you, what would you give them in terms of um, advice? Be kind to yourself. I think, I think the first thing is, is be kind to yourself. The two, second one is you don't have to know exactly what you're doing. <laughs> that, there's a, that it's a kind of weird process that if you really have a kind of passion for something and a purpose you're a bit like a spider spinning a web and you know when I started out doing noon I didn't really know how it was going to work or what it was going to look like or what I how I would make the money or but I really knew what I wanted to do and I knew that I had an incredible network that I could leverage and so I think it's a bit like if you're swimming a long way you just got to get in the water and start swimming you've got you just got to kind of got to start doing it go and meet someone for a coffee ring somebody up look at something that somebody else is doing that you think is interesting just begin to spin that web everything that you do will will add towards it you know start having conversations you can do it but but nobody really talks about and you and I think the book that we're doing with you is really interesting on this is that 
you were talking about how you set up your um, Simply Bose company, that you just you just got to start somewhere. And, and don't worry that it's not going to be perfect to begin with. Cheryl Sandberg's going to, she always says, done is better than perfect. And also that it's always impossible until it's done. And, you know, all these journeys begin with, it begins with a single step. So, so don't be too hard on yourself. Don't think it's got to be perfect to begin with. Just start doing something. Have an idea. Get out a notebook and write in it. What do you really want? I see so many women who get to this point and they've kind of forgotten what it was that they liked or they wanted to do or, you know, what the dreams were that they started off with. So just kind of start off with a blank page about what you really care about. Because I tell you what I can promise you is if you if you structure your life and your working life and your business around something which is a passion, it means that everything you do feels enjoyable. You were saying, what are my days like? Basically, every day I'm doing a whole load of stuff that I really love because it wouldn't be in my diary if I didn't want to do it. Um, and that is the greatest freedom and, you know, and joy. So it's really worth it. Don't, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. It will take a while. Keep spinning the web, keep having the conversations, keep thinking about it, and you will get somewhere, even if it feels at first like you're swimming in the dark. Absolutely. Elna, it has been an absolute pleasure. Where can our listeners find out more about Noon? Uh, so um, we're noon, as in the middle of the day, .org.uk. It's called noon because in the 100-year life, 50 is halfway through. So we're only at noon in our lives, so it's time to get on with it. Um, and if you're interested in my newsletter, that's on Substack. So if you go to eleanormills.substack.com. Um, in fact, if you go onto the noon website, it says, do you want to sign up to the Queen Age newsletter? And Queen Age's... Um, have get lots of we have great deals with like um, beauty companies and events and all those kind of things for our um, and we do a book club every month where people get a free book if they become part of my paid subscribers community which Sarah very much encouraged me to create so since I'm on her podcast come and become a paid subscriber queen ager and all goodies shall be yours we're worth it you are absolutely worth it thank you ever so much Elna it's a great pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. And um, it's always a joy to talk to you. And thank you, you too. Thank you.